there are a lot of lobbyists, but as Les says, they tend to balance one another off. Um, I think people are more, everyone has so much uh, power in this town. I, it's a kind of an egalitarian power system, I think, and um, they tend to balance off one another, and lobbyists are only as effective as your grassroots back home. And the people who write in, there could be three letters on a specific issue that um, can end up swaying a congressional decision if, it, if they're thoughtfully done and thought out. Um, people don't understand the amount of power that they have on any particular issue from the grassroots level. Lobbyists perhaps are given more credit for being more powerful than they are. Welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news analysis about the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Washington, D.C. I'm Scott Kuhn. The intro this week is provided by Jenny Thomas, uh, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, from a C-SPAN call-in show appearance in 1988, where she discusses the egalitarian nature of lobbying in the political process and the importance of building grassroots movements. Uh, in a appearance uh, made on C-SPAN uh, with the head of the uh, ladies uh, garment work LG ladies garment workers union, um, just kind of interesting. She's if you listen to her speak today, she's still the same, still you know soft spoken, older than she was back then. Uh, she ditched the perm that she had in that appearance, um, but still you know her public demeanor very different than the, uh, what we saw in the texts that were revealed this week in reporting from the Washington Post. But although that's kind of the lead segment that I'm going to be doing this show, um, this episode, really, we're going to be catching up with a lot of different developments, a lot of sort of divergent and diverse things that have been happening uh, at the Department of Justice, in the January 6th committee, and uh, some other things that have come to light, some, some current events that have come up since uh, the last episode. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the season, of course, developments are really picking up, and we ex- can expect that they will continue to pick up, up through the public hearings uh, that have been announced by the January 6th committee in April. Although Chairman Benny Thompson has recently announced that those might be moved back a little bit. They're going to get done with their work, then they're going to do the hearings, uh, so the time frame now is late April, early May, which is something that I'm thinking, well, you know, they can't really push it back any further than that. So I know they're doing a lot, but they need to get it done. And some of these developments have simply been the natural progression of cases as they wind their way through the judicial process. But some of it is uh, kind of on a timetable that is being created by especially the, the January 6th committee. And we'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about the, uh, the text that uh, you know, came to light through reporting at the Washington Post. And so I'm going to try to you know, get the episodes out as quickly as I can as developments warrant. I usually have been doing two uh, a month. Um, this month, there may be, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if this is the third episode of the month. Um, but 
you know, as developments warrant. Unfortunately, I get caught in this this thing where I, I have something that I think is going to be a major theme of the podcast, and then that's superseded by a news event that I feel, you know, has to be covered. And so I've got, like, this kind of a backlog of, of, of material that I'm, I'm probably never going to wind up actually getting to, simply because the, the events that have been happening supersede uh, the things that I thought I was going to get working on. So, again, new episodes, you know, as developments warrant, uh, as I can put them out. And I expect this pace is going to continue, um, well, really, probably through the midterms themselves, right? I mean, it's already midterm season, it's already primary season. But, uh, again, you know, these are, it's a two-track process. We've got a, a very important midterm election coming up, and we've got all the, the work of the committee and we've got all these judicial cases. So as things happen, I'm going to try to put out the episodes, you know, maybe, uh, I don't want to say weekly, um, but, you know, maybe three a, a month instead of the two that I've been doing. But before we get to all that and uh, all the latest developments, um, the insurrection news, uh, let's get caught up on the arrests, convictions, and other court proceedings. As always, brought to you courtesy of the good people at Sedition Tracker. There have been a total of 769 individuals charged, an increase of seven since our last episode. A total of 374 indictments, holding steady there. Probably just a quirk of the calendar. Uh, they're just getting caught up with the work process. Four deceased, no change there. One dismissal, same as always. 237 convictions, an increase of six since the last episode, and 100 sentencings, an increase of three since the last episode. So, kind of an artificial milestone, but yay, we've hit a hundred sentencings. During the segment on the show, when I look at the judicial developments, I usually pick a case of someone who's been newly arrested, convicted, or sentenced, and spend a little bit of time on them. Uh, this time, however, there's been a number of significant developments to track. So please forgive if I go for breadth rather than depth on this segment of the episode. Now, we had something rather unusual, but not unheard of, happen recently in the January 6th of prosecutions. Basically, the justice system, the whole justice system, not just the DOJ, but like also correctional people, also marshal service, law enforcement, lost track of an inmate who was in pretrial detention. And the inmate that they lost was one Lucas Denny, 44, of Mansfield, Texas. Denny is the president of an organization he calls the Patriot Boys of North Texas, uh, which I assume is inspired by the Three Percenters, because Denny actually wore a Three Percenters hat on January 6th as he was attacking the Capitol. Now, I've mentioned the uh, Patriot Boys on the podcast before, in the context of his co-defendant, uh, him and his co-defendant, Donald Hazard, uh, another North Texas Patriot boy, um, because they are documented discussing the fundraising for the January 6th attack in the charging documents. These are people who are part of a militia, uh, albeit a small one, that is basically affiliated with the Three Percenters, and they were looking for money to send them to the Capitol to attack electoral democracy on January 6th. So here is from, uh, and because they're, they're co-defendants, right? 
uh, they have one uh, statement of facts. Uh, here is the information on that from the statement of facts. Quote, on or about December 26, 2020, Denny messaged Hazard that, quote, DC is definitely on. Have plenty of money now. I just got a $1,000 donation from one person for the trip. I have more donations coming in too. Denny also asked Hazard if he knew, quote, any other guys that can go that's sick, that's like us, and will fight, we could use them, and it will be paid for, end quote. So that's significant, right? Who is funding these militias to come to D.C.? And that's one of the uh, kind of unreported stories that, you know, I've been trying to track going through individual uh, statements of facts, looking for information on the funding. Because if we're going to find a link between the attackers and the organizers, a lot of it is going to be done through the funding. And we know that the committee has people who are functionally subdivided looking specifically into the funding aspect. But we're just going to lay that aside for a moment, however, because, uh, you know, you've heard about me talk about this at any time. You're probably bored with it, uh, you know, but I think it's an important link between the foot soldiers and the coup plotters. Um, instead, I'd like to focus on Denny's legal situation. So, according to the statement of facts, Denny was rather busy on January 6th. He was attacking police during the flight, the fight at the barricade on the west side of the Capitol from about 1.30 p.m. onward. And then uh, Denny and Hazard were engaging police in hand-to-hand -hand combat together. They were grappling with these barricades, the so-called bike racks, dual-function barricades, and shoving officers with them. And once again, as always, uh, you know, caveat of, of, you know, allegedly it might apply, but as we'll see in a moment, Denny's pleaded guilty, so I don't have to use that. I don't have to qualify all these things with regard to the defendant, Denny, and say allegedly anymore because um, he has he is, uh, pled to uh, assaulting an officer. So at one point, Denny tries to steal an officer's pepper spray, and he wrestles with the officers over a long metal pole that he subsequently uses to attack an officer, and that is the, the count to which uh, Denny has pleaded. Denny is also alleged to have thrown a hollow PVC tube at officers, uh, which is why online volunteer citizen sleuths assigned him the hashtag pole tosser. Uh, so there's one part in the video where you can see he's, he's throwing this PVC tube at federal law enforcement. Now, after about 3 p.m. in the Lower West Tunnel Terrace, Lower West Terrace Tunnel fight, uh, Denny is approaching the officers in the tunnel, and he's carrying what appears to be a baton, and then proceeds to engage the officers by pushing them back with a stolen riot shield, along with other members of the mob, and he's leading them, directing this attack, chanting, heave, ho, as they push against uh, the line of officers. And then Denny personally engages with Officer Michael Fanone, who you will remember from the public hearings that were held by the January 6th committee. So Fanone is only identified as Officer MF in the charging documents, but there's a picture of him included in the charging documents. He's referred to as MF in the other charging documents as well. And you can see, you know, part of his face, it's clearly Michael Fanone. So 
After Fanon gets pulled from the police line, uh, Denny directs others in the Trumpist mob to attack Fanon, and he attempts to strike Fanon and grabs him, but ultimately winds up falling down himself. So here's where things begin to go sideways for the government. Uh, if you look, there's different documents. On the, there's a criminal complaint, and in the criminal complaint, it appears that Denny is going to be charged with the following offenses. Uh, assaulting, resisting, or impeding, impeding certain officers with a deadly or dangerous weapon, that flagpole, civil disorder, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, remember, you know, that all those conversations about how they're going to travel to D.C., everything that Hazard and Denny did together, entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds with a deadly or dangerous weapon, again, you know, he's got um, the, the spray that he's wrestling with, he's got the, the flagpole, uh, possibly a baton and a riot shield. I mean, so this guy's armed himself with many different weapons over the course of the attack. Disorderly and disruptive conduct in a restricted building or grounds with a deadly or dangerous weapon. Engaging in physical violence in a restricted building or grounds with a deadly or dangerous weapon. And finally, active physical violence in the Capitol building. And so, again, uh, according to, to that particular document, um, the, the criminal complaint, Denny's got eight counts, including multiple felonies. So, so far, so good. But the problem is that the indictment, in the indictment, Denny's only charged with the first count, assault on a federal officer. And too much time had elapsed between that and the arrest warrant that listed all the counts properly, right? So this was a violation of the Speedy Trial Act. Denny pleaded guilty to that single count on Monday, March 14th, which, you know, might, might appear strange, right? It's a felony count, so the most serious counts uh, that were, you know, that are possible, basically, uh, AFO. Um, but he's got a strategy in doing this. It's, you know, I want to say it's obvious, but um, basically that the idea is to uh, preempt a superseding indictment that properly lists all the charges that Denny ought to have faced based on the charges in the indictment. So if that works, uh, if the judge in the case somehow, you know, decides they're not going to allow any further charges, Denny would only face 24 to 27 months uh, versus being convicted of all these accounts at trial, he could face decades. Now, interestingly, Denny's fellow gang member, Hazard, his case was dealt with properly within the appropriate time frame, and it's going to proceed forward with all the accounts in the indictment. And um, his charges were actually a little bit more serious than those faced by Denny, because when he attacked an officer, um, Hazard uh, shoved someone uh, hard enough that they fell, and the injury that they suffered was sufficient to require surgery. And so he gets hit with, with two additional accounts related to inflicting serious bodily injury. So he's looking at a lot more time as well. So as I've mentioned many times, I'm not an attorney. There's all kinds of complicated things because they're charging a conspiracy together. You know, does Denny therefore also become responsible criminally for uh, hazards acts that cause a serious bodily injury? Are there different kinds of avenues that the uh, assistant U.S. attorneys could use to charge Denny adequately and accurately. 
Um, you know, is Judge Faruqi going to permit them to proceed with a, a superseding indictment? We don't know. Um, Faruqi has said in court that he believes that there was a good faith effort, a uh, good faith error, rather, on the part of the government. So, you know, we don't know. I mean, he's still looking at, at, at a felony count, but not what he deserves. And this emphasizes, I think, the, why the government has limited themselves to something like about 10 arrests a, a week on a good week, uh, precisely because everything, all the, the T's need to be dot, crossed and the I's dotted, um, and they, they need to do this carefully. Now, my broader point here is that there's this, you know, this complexity for the whole legal system, the whole work process. And I know that it's frustrating that it takes so long for identification uh, to arrest, to all the different hearings. But part of what's supposed to be built in there is that the, the time is, should be sufficient to give all the parties the time that they need to put in the work so that things like this don't happen. And this case against Denny is one of the most serious cases that the, the government has built. Um, he's the president and founder of a paramilitary gang. He's personally charged with a, a felony assault on a federal officer. And he's charged with conspiracy. So, I, you know, to my mind, yes, that raises serious concerns about the work that's going on at the Department of Justice. Moreover, I mean, every part of this, I mean, look, it, it's Michael Fanone, right? Michael Fanone is one of the four officers who's really been standing in as a kind of a surrogate for all the police who defended the Capitol and democracy on January 6th. And Denny's accused of being one of the people who didn't merely participate in the attack, but actually led the attack on him. So this is a high-profile case with multiple felony counts, and the government still messed it up. So obviously, this is absolutely inexcusable. There are going to be career consequences for somebody involved in this. We may never hear about it, but there will be. Um, and the other part that I, of this story that I'd like to direct your attention to is the fact that this isn't a unique occurrence. Basically, all the parties lost track of Denny. Not, not merely like the proceedings in this case, but physically kind of like lost track of what institution he was at. So, as I discussed in the treatment of Elmer Rhodes's pretrial detention issues, the movement of inmates across the federal correctional system is complex. There are a lot of different actors, there are a lot of moving parts. You've got the Department of Justice, you've got judges, you've got the Marshal Service, and you've even got these various private, private prison facilities and local facilities who house pretrial inmates under contract with the Marshal Service. So, while he's been in custody, Denny has been at three different facilities, a jail in Texas, the transfer facility in Oklahoma City that I made reference to in the, in the Rhodes case, and finally in, in Virginia. So the fact that they lost track of this case is probably related to, you know, losing track of the inmate. And this is something that I'm here to say happens more often than you might hope. So shocking, but also somewhat normal. Um, and, you know, I, I know I've talked about sort of a, a kind of a crisis at uh, the Bureau of Prisons and uh, the Marshals Service. There are a lot of administrative changes going on now. Uh, BOP has eliminated the relationships with the contract prisons due, for reasonable reasons. 
Um, I, I believe the Marshall Service is still using contract facilities. But, you know, and also with COVID, there's been, you know, an awful lot of chaos uh, in the federal law enforcement community. So, you know, I don't know to what extent any of that plays into it, not making excuses for any of it. I think this is abhorrent. Nonetheless, uh, you know, it's something to look out for. I mean, hopefully that this, you know, this does not happen again. Um, but probably something like this will. So the last episode also came out during the uh, trial of Guy Reffitt. Uh, and he was the guy who, of course, brought a gun to the Capitol insurrection and then threatened to shoot his own children if they turned him in. So I'd uh, like to do a quick update on that. Reffitt was found guilty on all counts and faces up to 60 years at his sentencing in June. So I know there are a lot of people who have been asking a lot of questions. These people are all getting slaps on the wrist. Well, you're seeing why people take plea bargains when they're, were, you know, they've got these uh, federal cases. Because if you go to trial, they, there's a price to be paid for that. And the price to be paid for that is that you're not going to be, you know, pleading to one charge. You're going to be convicted of multiple charges, including, as Reffitt was, multiple felony counts. And that time adds up really quickly. So I think it's going to really give a lot of pause to the other felony defendants about whether or not they should take a plea deal. And I'd be very surprised if Reffitt gets anything uh, less than a decade behind bars. I mean, that would actually be such a downward deviation from the sentencing guidelines. Uh, he's looking at serious time. So uh, watch for that in June. This will be the, you know, the longest sentence, I think, to date when it happens in June. Another recent noteworthy development is that Enrique Terrio, Tario, never quite sure, uh, was arrested on March 8th. And on March 15th, he was ordered to be held until trial. So Terrio is subject to pretrial detention. Now, as I mentioned last time, it looks like the government has set their sights on the Proud Boys, now the Oath Keepers case, as a trial date. This is the second superseding indictment in the Proud Boys case, but in other news related to the case, federal prosecutors said that they wouldn't rule out yet another superseding indictment, which probably means we can expect one, based on new evidence that they obtained on the occasion of Terry's arrest. Ethan Nordine, Joseph Biggs, Zachary Real, Charles Donahoe, and Dominic Spaz-Pizzola are all charged in the indictment in addition to Terrio. The lead charge is the now familiar 1512 charge, obstruction of an official proceeding, except that here it's also included an account of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, and because this is a conspiracy, they are all effectively charged with assault on a federal officer, even though only two of them actually appear to have done that. So six counts altogether, uh, with the prospect of even more on the way. Now, some of the information in this new indictment has hardly changed at all, other than the addition of Terrio and a few other changes. Uh, for example, there are a few minor changes to the paragraph that describes the Proud Boys gang, such as the fact that they eliminated the subhead in the section on the Proud Boys, but uh, it still included largely the same information in the description. 
This same change is essentially the same as the change that was made in the Oath Keepers' seditious conspiracy indictment, where the heading there was also removed, as I discussed in the first Oath Keepers episode. Other matters of clarification are included, such as there are changes to the description of the positions of the various individuals to reflect uh, what their position was within the Proud Boys gang on January 6th, rather than whatever their position uh, with relative to the gang is today. One interesting new detail included in the second superseding indictment is the following, a description of a meeting that took place on the afternoon of January 5th, after Terrio was released from custody for his arrest for destruction of property and possession of two large capacity magazines on January 4th. Quote, Terrio did not immediately comply with the order to leave the District of Columbia. After being turned away from the Phoenix Park Hotel, Terrio traveled to a nearby underground parking garage, where he met with Elmer Stewart Rhodes III, the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers, and other individuals known and unknown to the grand jury, for approximately 30 minutes. During this encounter, a participant mentioned the Capitol. Now, this incident, this uh, meeting in the underground parking garage, has been known publicly for many months now, uh, but it's a new piece of evidence in the indictment. So far, only stills, uh, says, say, still photography from the uh, meeting have been available, but the meeting itself was apparently documented by a British documentary film crew who Enrique Terrio had following him around. Uh, not to be confused with the Danish film crew who was apparently following Roger Stone around. So, for some reason, there's not a lot of good audio uh, I don't know why this is. Uh, was the equipment malfunctioning? Or maybe um, they asked the documentary crew to do something, uh, you know, to make sure it wasn't recorded. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it would be strange to have any audio if that's the case. Uh, you just unplug the microphone or whatever, turn it off. Um, but in addition to Rhodes, other participants included uh, another Oath Keeper who's not been charged to date. Uh, Kelly Sorrell, uh, who's the general counsel of the Oath Keepers and apparently uh, Rhodes's reputed girlfriend, uh, Joshua Macias of Vets for Trump, and Bianca Garcia of Latinos for Trump. So the meeting itself is significant for a couple of reasons. Firstly, as I've mentioned before, everything the Oath Keepers did, the Proud Boys also did, and their actions are just as well documented. And so we can reasonably expect that there's going to be another superseding indictment for the Proud Boys, charging them with seditious conspiracies as the Oath Keepers have been charged. Another thing is that, according to Reuters, the FBI is investigating the meeting. That story came out before Terrier was charged, but I don't think that they're only investigating the meeting because they plan to charge Terrier. Right? There are other people participating. Uh, Joshua Macias, for example, is already in some trouble. He's currently out on bail, facing weapons charges stemming from an incident during the counting of votes in November 2020 in Philadelphia. Macias has been active today in the sedition convoy that is currently creating pointless inconveniences for D.C. area drivers. And prosecutors in Pennsylvania say this violates the terms of his bail. And also, he's been engaged in social media use, which, again, are against his conditions of release. So, you know, I, it's curious why he hasn't been charged. 
Um, both Macias and Garcia spoke at the rally on January 6th. And so this could be yet another step into the inner circle of sedition VIPs. And speaking of sedition VIPs, Paul Manafort was apprehended trying to leave the country. I feel like this should be bigger news. Manafort was trying to fly to Dubai on an Emirates Airlines flight using a revoked passport. I have so many questions about this. Was this a business trip? Does it have anything to do with January 6th? Is it related to Ukraine somehow? Is it related to Ukraine or Russia and January 6th all at the same time? Or maybe something else we don't even know about. Uh, there have been an awful lot of Russian oligarchs who have found reasons uh, to visit Dubai lately. It's also curious that, you know, Manafort's an attorney, of course, and his passport was revoked on the occasion of his arrest in 2017. And yet there's nothing to prevent him from applying for a new passport, but uh, he's seemingly neglected to do that. He presumably knew that his passport was revoked, why he was attempting to fly. I don't know. Uh, to me, that just suggests haste on his part. So why would he be wanting to get out of the country quickly at this point? One of the things that's striking uh, is how well this whole coup doc attempt was documented by its many participants. So I'd like to turn now to yet another one of those that I may have mentioned briefly in an earlier episode, uh, but there's another news development in that document that I think is worthy of some attention. Now, you think about all these different documents. There's the Eastman memo, uh, Phil Waldron's PowerPoint, the, the presidential findings document that has sometimes been characterized as an executive order, even though, you know, it's complicated. It's not really technically uh, an executive order. Um, but that's the one that had the scheme to turn the election over to the military, right? Uh, there's Bernie Carrick's strategic communications plan, etc. So these are very important, right? I mean, we're going to be talking about text messages, you know, a, a little bit later. Um, but, you know, these are the documents that essentially show the inner workings of uh, the, the coup. And the people who are involved in that process are the ones ultimately who will lead directly to Donald Trump if Merrick Garland uh, winds up, you know, charging anyone. So there are a couple of ways to think about all these. Um, first, you know, why, they, why, why would they document all this so well? Um, and one way to think about it is the, the way the coup plotters probably thought about it themselves. Uh, the more the merrier. Ivan Reichland, for example, is on video saying, we've got so many outs, there are so many different pathways to victory. And so th there seems to be like this strategy to just develop all the plans, just develop so many different plans and, uh, you know, hope and work toward one of them working. This method that they used, you know, this sort of crowdsourced insurrection, uh, this coup, this plot that has so many authors, uh, personally, and no proof of this, but I see Bannon's fingerprints all over that, right? This seems like something that Steve Bannon would do. It's just so in line with how he operates, uh, you know, uh, throw enough shit against the wall. I mean, that's, that's Steve Bannon. But the other way that I've increasingly thought about all these documents is that this is also a flaw in their plan. It, it didn't just give them all these outs, so to speak. Um, it, you know, 
created a lot of documents that are now being used as evidence, but it also, I think, distracted from their focus. It probably is better to have like one simple plan with some contingencies, uh, but instead, you know, again, they're, they're just kind of all over the place. Uh, this plan was too diffuse and there, there are way too many eggs in too many baskets. At any rate, uh, turning to yet another one of these documents, which is not necessarily a planning document or strategy document uh, so much as it is a document that was used as evidence uh, to fabricate, uh, you know, substantiate these fabricated uh, claims of electoral fraud. Now, this is the so-called Dominion Report, which was titled Overview 12 to 20 History, Executives, Vote Manipulation Ability and Design, Foreign Ties. Now, this document first surfaced in December of 2020, and there's always been a number of questions about the authorship of it, uh, which was first handed over to the Gateway Pundit, and it was probably actually just fed directly to the Gateway Pundit, of course as that's an outlet that is very sympathetic to Trumpist seditionism. At the same time, uh, you know, when it was released, the document listed an attorney, one uh, Catherine Fries, as the author on the cover page. And the metadata was consistent with her authorship. But according to reporting now in The, the Guardian, it's been established that the real author of the document was one Joanna Miller, who was a senior aide to Peter Navarro. The article itself makes no claims about why the authorship of the document was changed, but to my mind, you know, it's understandable. It would actually be highly inappropriate for a White House aide to be working on this. Um, it would be, you know, more appropriate if it appeared to come from the campaign. Uh, and, you know, again, they're also trying to establish some credibility here, right? And so, you know, uh, this is just another document that's coming from inside the, the, the Trump White House. You know, um, they, they won't be able to refer back to it, which is what they, the ultimate goal is. They want to be able to refer back to this as some kind of proof or substantiation. So it, it's significant, right? This document, the Dominion document, is significant for a number of reasons. One of the reasons it's significant is that Navarro then turned around and used this document, of course, as a source for claims that he would make three weeks later in a report of his own. So it's like a snake eating its own tail. Uh, they're using a document written by his own aide and then false attributing it to someone else and then claiming that it's somehow authoritative when it's something that was fabricated at his own directive. Um, you know, just pile of bullshit. Now, this is laziness on, on the part of the coup plotters. Instead of getting like an attorney, someone who's qualified, um, I mean, I guess that might, you know, get some, involve some issues uh, for, uh, you know, being members of the bar in good standing, or in, indeed getting someone who's a legitimate, bona fide technical expert, an, ex an expert on uh, elections equipment, something like that. The task of writing this document fell to a senior aide for Peter Navarro. And I'm using that in scare quotes, because if you look at uh, who Joanna Miller is, I have no idea why she is a senior aide to Joanna, to uh, Peter Navarro at this point, right? Um, you know, I wanna be clear. They call Joanna Miller a senior aide, but she is not senior 
Anyway, she was hired straight out of college in 2019. So she's about 25 years old, maybe 26. Uh, you know, much younger at the time, right? So, uh, what, you know, 22, 23. I mean, you've got this document that is supposedly, you know, be documenting all this these nefarious things that is just written by someone who's really got no experience in anything, right? She was a former intern, right? So they gave this work assignment to an intern. So, um, you know, to my mind, it raises questions about, you know, why such a young person would be placed in a, such a position of responsibility, uh, you know, to become a, a senior aide. Uh, oftentimes in politics in D.C., the way this works is that it's because the parents are donors. Um, I, you know, I tried to follow this lead, but, you know, of course, Miller is a very common name, and so I haven't been able to track them down, and there's been other stuff going on. Um, but it is true that uh, Joanna Miller comes from a rather privileged background. She graduated from the Hackley School in Terrytown, New York, which coincidentally is the same school where Bill Barr's father was once headmaster. Probably coincidence. So, but I don't know, you know, who, who knows how these things work in these circles. But, you know, there's this whole class of, you know, sort of, we focus on the Brett Kavanaugh's, right? You know, but people who are just kind of gifted uh, these, these kinds of, of careers, you know, based on uh, ideology, money, connections, things of that nature. But one thing is for sure, she's, she's not an election systems expert or really any kind of expert in anything. And so I just approached this document as though it's a, a student essay. Um, and, you know, that's what it looks like. I mean, one of the saddest things about some members of uh, this generation is that they seem absolutely constitutionally incapable of doing their own work or citing their sources properly. And this is someone who's in way over her head. So there's this all-important document that's supposedly proving that Dominion voting systems is in a league with a globalist cabal to thwart Donald Trump. Um, you look at it and you find that, no, it is uh, a plagiarized 23-year-old you know, document written by a 23-year-old who's grant a, granted a position for which she was thoroughly unqualified. Um, it's a classic example of what I call mosaic plagiarism, and it's evident from the very first sentence. I'm not going to do a particularly close reading of this. I mean, there's all kinds of you know, just evidence in the document, if you uh, are, you know, uh, good at grading particularly, um, that shows that this was written rather hurriedly at the last minute, not carefully proofread, and also that there are just large sections of text that were cut and pasted from other documents, and then, like, you know... Um, Words are changed slightly, right? So, you know, and that process introduces errors. There's subject, object, disagreements. Uh, you know, there's verbs that are the tenses. There's all kinds of little, little telltale signs. And, but most tellingly, there's just, um, yeah, I mean, there are instances of repeated text where there's, you know, just text is put in one part and then, put in, in in another part in a different context and it's like literally the same thing um and then there's some other stuff that's just kind of nuts I, it's hard for me to imagine anyone ever thought this thing was credible um i mean the very first sentence is quote 
Dominion Voting System is a Canadian company that sells electronic voting hardware and software founded in 2002 by John Polos, the company's current CEO, end quote. So the very first thing that you notice is that the name of Dominion Voting Systems appears wrong here. Very first thing in the report, they get the name of the company wrong. It's actually Dominion Voting Systems, not Dominion Voting System. So that's kind of a red flag to me. The, the author is not a terribly proficient writer. All writing is rewriting, and they haven't done a good job of proofreading. And, you know, if I were grading this, I would be in for a long day with my red pen. Um, so, you know, if you're checking for unattributed citations, uh, all you really need to do is to cut and paste a single phrase of five words or more into Google, and it's going to take you to the source document. I know there are a lot of people who use anti-plagiarism software. I usually don't bother with that. Uh, it's usually not necessary because you can usually find it on your own. Now, this is handy. Uh, what you're really doing is just reverse engineering the, the way the typical semi-literate plagiarist actually operates. So I just use a phrase, sells electronic voting hardware and software, which is a, a six word phrase. Uh, what's the first thing that comes up? The Wikipedia entry for Dominion Voting Systems. Again, I wasn't looking for Dominion Voting Systems, right? But the very first thing that comes up when you enter that six word phrase, you know, and it, it is fascinating how this works, right? I mean, the, the way that, you know, if someone's actually plagiarizing, it takes a string of so few words. Uh, to be able to come up with a, a unique document that is almost invariably the source that's cited or improperly cited. Um, unless sometimes, by the way, I, I've run into problems where it's like that source is plagiarizing from another source, which is a, a whole other ish, issue. But literally the very first thing, the very first thing is a uncited uh, section. You know, the very first sentence of the entry on Wikipedia for Dominion Voting Systems. And, you know, here I'll just, just compare them really quickly. Again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Dominion Voting System is a Canadian company that sells electronic voting hardware and software founded in 2002 by John Polos, the company's current CEO. Here's the Wikipedia entry. Dominion Voting Systems Corporation is a company that sells electronic voting hardware and software including voting machines and tabulators in the United States and Canada. So, again, she's made very few changes. Uh, the first sentence of this report is mosaic cut-and-paste plagiarism, where she's changed a couple of words. She wants to emphasize that it's Canadian, for example, and she wants to, to, to mention the name of the founder. Uh, but other than that, again, you know, the very definition of, of what she's doing here is to use uh, unsighted sources. Why? Because this is someone who's not you know, she's out of her depth and staring at a blank page. She's been given this assignment and she doesn't know what to do. Um, and, you know, going through this document, the whole thing, it's uh, just astounding me that anyone found it persuasive at all. But insurrection apologists, you know, still wave it around today as though it's authoritative. It's not. It's just a quick and sloppy cut and paste job by a former intern who was promoted too rapidly. It's a series of photos and bullet points and unedited text that was just copied and pasted from public sources with grammatical errors added in. Uh, things such as, quote, this system eventually built the foundation of Smartmatic, right? So how does that happen? Well, usually 
um, what, the way that happens is that someone is plagiarizing from another source and they get the, uh, they just get the, the tense wrong, right? It should be builds. Um, but, you know, because they're cutting and pasting and they're not intellectually careful, surprisingly, most plagiarists are not. That's what happens. Now, you know, my temptation here is to just edit this thing and go through it. But, you know, obviously I would have failed this paper based on content. Um, but, you know, just the sloppiness itself, you're going to get, you know, you're going to start with a C. Um, the author's intent appears to have been to just create as many footnotes as possible to create an, a, a kind of an impression of rigor. But that impression doesn't stand up to even cursory examination because this is supposedly a final draft. But there's actually a section of the, the report that's about the Antrim County nonsense I know I've talked about before. It reads as follows, quote, the morning after the election, William Bailey, parentheses, finishing right up in close parentheses. That's in the section of this report, right? So this is supposedly a final draft, but included in the section, they're changing the name, but no one ever goes back and like actually finishes the write up that they say they're finishing the write up. So, you know, they, I, I want to know what this means for the, the, uh, the Dominion lawsuits, right? Dominion is vigorously defending the reputation of their firm, uh, for this ongoing disinformation campaign. And, um, if I were Jojo Miller, I'd be looking for a lawyer right now because this document, which has her fingerprints all over it, has been used in this disinformation campaign and was part of the coup attempt. So maybe her parents can help her find a good lawyer. But, you know, if I were her, I would be looking for one. And if I were on the January 6th committee, uh, you know, they, they, they should have some words with uh, Jojo. Uh, which, by the way, was her nickname when she played uh, soccer at, I think, American University. I'm not sure. I uh, don't remember offhand. Um, all right. Let's now turn to the question of Jenny Thomas's drunk texts with Mark Meadows. But before I get into that, I'd like to address what I feel is a common misconception revolving around uh, Jenny Thomas and her involvement in the insurrection. That is the claim that Jenny Thomas was somehow the main master of mind behind the insurrection itself. There's no documentary evidence to suggest that that's the case. A lot of this focuses around the claim that Jenny Thomas hired 80 buses to go to the Capitol for January 6th. That is a debunked claim. There's no evidence for that. The person who made that claim was Charlie Kirk at TPUSA, Turning Point USA, right? So Charlie Kirk is, you know, definitely connected to the, the coup plotters and the insurrection organizers. Um, Jenny Thomas has spoken at TPUSA events. You can see that online if you look for uh, her videos on that. Um, but she hasn't been on the advisory board since 2019. And again, there's no evidence suggesting that, you know, she was personally funding all this. Is she giving money to TPUSA right now? Probably, right? Um, you know, but did she give them enough money to, to fund 80 buses? No. Uh, incredibly, her personal net worth is not such that she is going to be able to fund this multi-million dollar event. 
The truth about the funding is actually far more complex. That doesn't mean there aren't funders who are implicated. Yes, they are. But part of my problem with the, these claims about Jenny Thomas in particular is it lets other people off the hook, right? So similarly, when you look at a lot of people who are like, they talk about the insurrection, they'll focus on the QAnon shaman, right? QAnon shaman is a crazy guy and he's very remarkable, but he's not one of the central figures. He's one of the poster children of the, you know, Chansley is uh, someone who's, you know, definitely played a role, definitely committed crimes, he's pled guilty to them and he's currently incarcerated. But, you know, he's not John Eastman, right? You know, he's not Sidney Powell, right? Those are the people that we're talking about. Not Roger Stone, not Paul Manafort, um, you know, this is not Phil Waldron, right? I mean, these are the people that we're talking about. You know, not Mark Meadows, not even a Joanna Miller, okay? So um, we don't know the extent of her involvement, and that might come out. But the thing with the buses, there were lots of people organizing buses. Doug Mastriano, state Senate candidate, used uh, campaign funds for his campaign for the, the Pennsylvania State Senate to send buses of insurrectionists to attack the Capitol. We know that's true. So uh, focus on the, the, the real problems, and there are definitely real problems, but we need to be alert that somehow these things become folklore. And, you know, is Jenny Thomas a seditious insurrectionist? Yes, she is. But was she, the, the amount of credibility that's been given to the claim that she is one of the, the main central figures, um, I think it assumes things that aren't in evidence. There are dozens of people who are more important than she is. Now, that being said, is it a problem that we have the White House Chief of Staff communicating with the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice, uh, talking about overthrowing the outcome of a democratic election, the presidential election of 2020. Yes, it is. So let's go into that. Now, these um, emails, or sorry, these messages came to light in reporting that was done by the Washington Post and CBS. So Bob Costa, who used to be at the Post, is now at CBS, uh, and Bob Woodward is the other person on the byline. Um, not, you know, he's semi-retired. So uh, they're still working together as kind of a joint project here. Um, but it's pretty clear that the story here is basically that someone from the committee gave them these text messages for some purpose, arguably. Um, and, you know, why is that? Well, a number of reasons. I, it could be to put pressure on Mark Meadows. I'll go through the timeline and I'll read every single text message but you'll note that there are several periods that are not covered, right? So the period from sort of uh, late November through the insurrection itself uh, is not covered. There's a gap, and the, the gap, I think, is significant because that's the, the part where the plan starts focusing on the, um, the fake electors and on the Eastman memo, uh, where they develop this whole scheme to have... Pence tried to, to halt the counting of the electoral votes, right? That's not in here. So what I think might be happening here is that maybe, maybe this does show up in there. Maybe later on, Jenny and Mark talk about this in their text messages. So it could be a final shot across the bow for Mark Meadows to say, look, we made this criminal referral back in December. We are serious. We know you've got everything. I mean, they really, I believe, think that 
Meadows is flippable and that he's got everything. Uh, and that's for a variety of reasons, right? Meadows is a central access point for access to Trump. And so if they can turn Meadows, the whole case, the direct line to Donald Trump is available. So I think that's why they're focusing so hard on him. And the, I think the effort here might not be, you know, this, this is going to make a big news splash. And for some reason, by the way, they keep doing these things on, on Fridays. Right? This was, uh, I think, 5 o'clock yesterday. Um, you know, the, the news dump Friday has, has now become like the day where we break major news. Usually it used to be where we would bury a story. Now, for some reason, they, they you know, they like to do stories, huge stories like this on a Friday. So I think that's what could be going on. This could be like, hey, look, Merrick Garland is, is sitting on this. But, you know, that may be to give Mark Meadows the time to comply. They don't really want to... Uh, prosecute this criminal referral, what they really want is Mark Meadows' full cooperation. So a lot of the best stuff that we've gotten out of the committee has come from Mark Meadows when he was cooperating. And I think that that is why uh, they are releasing this information at this time. And I think that the implied threat here is there's another shoe that's going to drop. You, during this time frame, you talked about all these things. You know, you talked about the need to fight for Trump and all that with Jenny Thomas. Only Mark Meadows and Jenny Thomas know what they talk about from late uh, November 2020 through early January 2021. And uh, my guess is that Thomas or, and Meadows, if you look at the tone of the conversation, Thomas is just openly seditious, right? Meadows is more cautious. Meadows, I think, knows that, well, okay, this is, there's official records act. There's NARA. This is not, you know, a secret. Um, you know, these aren't burner phones, right? And, you know, this is something that we only have because Meadows turned it over. There's been reporting on this thing. Well, I mean, there's some secret grand jury subpoenas. Like, no, no, no. It's clearly identified in the Casa and Woodward uh, article that this was the, this, where we got this is from the committee, right? And so really, this is one of the easiest articles that they've ever done. I mean, basically, it's just the text messages and the journalistic work or the clarifications, I think, actually, um, they don't help. I mean, to my mind, it's actually better to just go through the straight up text messages uh, rather than all this needless clarifications. Um, you know, things like Parler, a conservative, you know, you don't need to say that Parler is conservative. I assume if you're this interested at this point, you know what Parler is. So um, what I'm going to do is what I've done, I've, I've basically redacted all the, uh, most of the journalistic comments uh, by Casa and Woodward, except where they uh, seem relevant. And just going to go through chronologically, because another thing that they did in the article was they mix them up a little bit. And, and I, I don't think that's particularly useful or, or helpful here. Uh, it's better to go through it chronologically. So I've tried to reconstruct that as best I can. All right. So the 11th of, sorry, the 5th of November, 2020, Jenny Thomas. Thomas sends Meadows a link to the following, a video entitled, Trump sting with CIA director Steve Pazizniak, the biggest election story in history, QFS blockchain. And then she comments to Meadows, I hope this is true. Never heard anything like this before, or even a hint of it. Possible? 
three exclamation points? Sorry, quotation marks, quotation marks, three question marks, excuse me. Watermarked ballot. this is Thomas again. Watermarked ballots in over 12 states have been part of a huge Trump and military white hat staying operation in 12 key battleground states. End quote. This is just another one of those utterly insane uh, theories that we're, we're circulating. Quote, Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators, parentheses, elected officials, bureaucrats, social media censorship mongers, fake stream media reporters, etc., in parentheses, close parentheses, uh, are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now in overcoming days and will be living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. End quote. So this is pure QAnon stuff. That's just right, like, secret arrests and military and tribunals and just, okay, all right, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but that's, that's the kind of thing that Jenny Thomas is discussing with the president's chief of staff in this time frame. 11-6-20, November 6th. Jenny, do not concede. It takes time for the army who is gathering for his back. Uh, and according to the Post reporting, it's unclear if Meadows responded. So that, by the way, is kind of curious. That shows me that this is curated, right? That the January 6th committee gave them texts, but a curated set of texts. Um, and again, I think that the omissions may be telling. They, Mark Meadows knows what was omitted better than we do. And I think that that might be the purpose behind all of this, uh, you know, theater. November 10th, 2020. Jenny. Mark, I want to text you and tell you for days that you are in my prayers. Help this great president stand firm. Something about, this is the greatest heist in our history, of our history. Listen to Rush. Mark Stein, Bongino, Flita. Uh, again, just right-wing uh, media, I don't, want, I don't even know the proper word here, propagandists. One minute later, uh, Meadows gives a, a, sends a, a text back replying, quote, I will stand firm. We will fight until there is no fight left. Our country is too precious to give up on. Thanks for all you do. And then nine minutes later, Thomas sends a text back, tearing up and praying for you guys. So proud to know you. So I would be curious actually to know what, what time of day uh, these messages were sent. I mean, this whole thing on, on her end particularly, maybe this is just how her brain works. Maybe she acts like she's drunk all the time. That's why I titled this uh, Jenny Thomas's Drunk Text. I, it's the 21st century. If you've never had someone drunk text with you, this is what it's like, right? I mean, this, you know, he is, um, he, he's, <laughs> on his end, the conversation is, you know, relatively quick and short. It reminds me of the uh, the emails between Lanny Davis and Hillary Clinton. You know, Hillary uh, would, would just be very, very businesslike, and then Lanny would, like, write her a love letter. It's really bizarre if you ever read those. Um, and the, the tone here is, you know, just like, crazy theory, you know, and then uh, Meadow's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're working on it, you know, I mean, so, kind of interesting, again, maybe, maybe she doesn't drink for all I know, I, I don't know. 
Uh, but that's what it, it reads like to me, is drunk decks. So later, on the 10th of November, 2020, Jenny. Van Jones spins interestingly, but shows us the balls being juggled, too. House and Senate guys are pathetic, too, he loves us. Only four GOP House members seen out in street rallies with grassroots. Gomert, Jordan, Gosar, and Roy. Where the heck are all those who benefited by President's coattails? Um, and then she sent him, uh, Meadows a YouTube video about the power of never conceding, uh, wherever that is. Uh, later on the 10th, Jenny Thomas uh, sends another text. Help this great president stand firm, Mark, three exclamation points ellipsis. You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. Okay, so, yeah, the, the, the majority, again, it would be the 81 million people who voted for Joe Biden, but facts do not apply. Uh, she has, you know, rejected reality and substituted her own. 13th of November, 2020. She texted uh, Meadows about Jared, uh, which, of course, you know, I, I assume she doesn't mean Jared Fogel uh, or Jared the jeweler, um, you know, presumably Kushner, right? Just forwarded to your Gmail an email I sent to Jared this AM. Sidney Powell and improved coordination now will help the cavalry come and fraud exposed and America saved. Um... And again, the, the messages provided by the committee don't show a response by Meadows, is, is the language that uh, Woodward and Costa use. But again, you know, maybe there was a response, right? Maybe, again, this is just teasing something. Um, and uh, according to the reporting in the Post, Kushner did not respond to a request for comment, shockingly. Later, on the 13th of November, Jenny... Don't let her and your assets be marginalized and said. Help her be the lead and the face. Again, this is with reference to Sidney Powell. And it would be interesting to know, right, uh, to what extent Thomas was working with uh, Sidney Powell and how closely. So, you know, my operating theory is that maybe she's kind of marginal. You know, who knows? Um... But some of the things I, I think do show that, you know, she's, well, I wouldn't include this woman in my crazy, in my group. Uh, although maybe being, being this nuts is part, of, and I don't want to be pejorative about mental health here, right? Um, you know, but spotting this kind of nonsense uh, might, might be uh, more of a recommendation that, than it otherwise might be. On the 14th of November, Thomas sends Meadows um, something from Connie Hare who is Louis Gohmert's chief of staff. Louis Gohmert, of course, from the Sedition Caucus in the House. And the message uh, says, quote, the, only, the most important thing you can realize right now is that there are no rules in war. This war is psychological. Then all caps, PSYOP. So a lot of people who are interested in the PSYOPs thing, you know, uh, will recognize it. You know, yes, of course. You know, Jenny Thomas thinks that this thing uh, is a psyop. Um, the Post contacted Hare, uh, this Connie Hare from uh, Gohmert's 
uh, staff and said that the, he had no idea what, what any of this was referring to. Um, of course, you know, convenient lapse in memory there. On the 19th of November, uh, Thomas is texting again with Meadows. And again, um, it's a whole bunch of texts from, from Thomas and, and like just sort of very perfunctory responses from, from Meadows. Jenny, Mark, don't want to wake you. Sounds like Sydney and her team are getting inundated with evidence of fraud. Make a plan. Release the Kraken and save us from the left taking America down. Jenny. Suggestion. You need to buck up your team on the inside, Mark. The lower level insiders are scared, fearful, or sending out signals of hopelessness versus an awareness of the existential threat to America right now. You can buck them up. Strengthen their spirits. Jenny. Monica Crowley may have a sense of this from her Nixon days. Jenny. You guys fold. Evil just moves fast down underneath you all. Lots of intensifying threats coming to ACB and others. Uh, that's Amy Comey Barrett, right? Um, not sure what, what that means, what kind of threats she's talking about. You know, the Obama Youth Brigade, UN black helicopters, we don't know. Meadows just texts back saying, thanks so much. So again, I'll, we talk about these, these texts like, this is all Jenny Thomas, just texting this kind of stuff with, with Meadows and him being like, yeah, thanks, thanks, that's, that's wonderful. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I do wonder if he has some cognitive distance about, about all of this, um, that, you know, he's on the same side with this really troubled individual. The 19th of November, Jenny. The intense pressures you and our president are now experiencing are more intense than anything experienced, but I only felt a fraction of it in 1991. So that's obviously a reference to the confirmation process uh, during 1991 uh, when uh, Anita Hill credibly accused Clarence Thomas of uh, sexual harassment. More on the 19th later the same day, during the, the Giuliani uh, hair dye press conference, if you remember that, when Giuliani was sweating and he had some dark turpentine or something running down uh, his uh, sweaty face. Um, quote, Jenny, tears are flowing at what Rudy is doing right now. Mark, glad to help. And again, it was just a kind of an insane... Again, I don't want to use the word, but really bizarre performance that uh, Rudy was was putting on uh, on that occasion. Not, not only did he look terrible, but he was just kind of all over the place. It's 22nd of November. Jenny, trying to understand the Sidney Powell distancing. In quote, that's just a reference to, uh, you know, apparent efforts by others in the administration to, uh, you know, distance themselves from the... the uh, complete nonsense that Sidney Powell was spouting about election fraud at that time. Mark. She doesn't have anything, or at least she won't share it if she does. Jenny. Wow. That's, this is interesting. And then it says, Meadows did not respond. So, uh, presumably in this gap, actually, it looks like uh, the reporters know that um, 
that there definitely wasn't a response here. Uh, so what it, it appears to indicate to me here is that Meadows knows that what Powell is doing is nonsense. And uh, Thomas is trying to, you know, put that into her worldview that somehow the chief of staff, the president, might actually agree with reality in the fact that, you know, uh, his candidate lost uh, pretty much in a landslide and isn't going to be taking office uh, in, in any way. Um, and he just kind of appears to, to cut her off at this point in the conversation. So again, more clues as to why it may be that they want to engage with Meadows, because Meadows has some awareness of what was going on and full knowledge, I think, of what was happening. Uh, and yet, you know, um, was initially complying, is not now complying, and they really want to make that happen. November 24th, um, Thomas sends Meadows a video from Parlor that was somehow related to Glenn Beck. Jenny, if you all cave to the elites, you have to know that many of your 73 million feel like what Glenn is expressing. So, interesting choice, right? You know, Thomas's net worth of, you know, presumably millions of dollars. You know, I mean, not not tens of millions, but... Um, and, you know, she's married to a Supreme Court justice and has spent her life at high levels in D.C. politics, but, you know, the elites is not her. I don't know who they are, but it's not her. Um, and then she writes that uh, a lot of people in the Trumpist base are going to be done with politics, that their, their scheme to uh, overturn the election doesn't work, and she says, me included, I think I am done with politics, and I don't think I am alone, Mark. And then Meadows replies three minutes later, I don't know what you mean by caving to the elites, which, yeah, good point, Mark Meadows. This is just, uh, this is, you know, she's sucking up all this Glenn Beck nonsense. Um, Jenny, I can't see Americans swallowing the obvious fraud. Just going with one more thing with no freaking consequences. She said freaking. Goodness, soft-spoken little Jenny Thomas. The whole coup and now this. We just cave to people wanting Biden to, be, Biden to be anointed? Many of us can't continue the GOP charade. Then uh, they, they keep texting back and forth, and Meadows says, You're preaching to the choir. Very demoralizing. And then uh, in, in one of the longer texts that we actually have from Meadows, and um, kind of gives you a little bit more insight into his worldview than what we see in his otherwise rather terse responses. Meadows writes, This is a fight of good versus evil. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. Do not grow weary in well-doing. The fight continues. I have staked my career on it. Well, at least my time in D.C. on it. End quote. In response, Jenny Thomas writes, Thank you. Needed that. This plus a conversation with my best friend just now. I will try to keep holding on. America is worth it. So that's 
the gap. And um, there's apparently, I believe, more that the committee has, but the committee doesn't have anything uh, after November 24th. And the only thing that they have is one additional message from January 10th, after the Stop the Steel rally, obviously. Um, and again, you know, as the, the reporting here points out, Thomas was there, right? Thomas was at the Stop the Steel rally. Uh, and, you know, she didn't storm the Capitol, but, you know, nonetheless, uh, you know, also at the Willard. So, um, you know, while she didn't fund all the buses, you know, we don't know what she knew about what was going to happen with the attack. So on the, the 10th of January, he sends Meadows this message. We are living through what feels like the end of America. Most of us are disgusted with the VP and are in listening mode to see where to fight with our teams. Those who attack the Capitol are not representative of our great teams of patriots for DJD. Amazing times, the end of liberty. So it's kind of interesting that the idea that losing an election uh, is somehow the end of liberty, right? You know, that uh, this is, uh, again, posing politics in these existential terms. It's like, no, that's not the end of liberty. In fact, you know, um, in Rousseauian terms, it's a normal part of the process, right? Um, you know, I mean, Rousseau had this language about uh, forcing people to be free that I think you know, may conservatives might find objectionable. But nonetheless, sometimes you lose elections. That's the point. We have elections. And then, you know, as Americans, we rally behind, behind the president or we at least, you know, go back to our... Uh, our workbenches and try to figure out a way to actually legitimately win to craft policy proposals that will actually win a real election uh, rather than doing what Jenny Thomas would advocate, you know, which is trying to, through different schemes and devices, overturn the legitimate result of a presidential election. So, you know, what, what do these texts mean? Well, Again, from the time frame, you know, there's no evidence that she's either endorsing or planning or preparing an attack on the Capitol. Certainly, we know the buses thing isn't true. But, I mean, to my mind, it would appear that she was probably, and we don't know, you know, again, because the time frame is wrong, but the Eastman memo scheme, right? Um, I think that she winds up going down that trail with them to the extent that she's actually involved with any of this. Uh, she's probably you know, talking to, to Meadows and saying, you know, let's get the vice president to reject the, the electoral college votes, right? You know, let's uh, mess with the certification process. So I, I think that's probably the direction that Jenny Thomas would have been headed. And uh, there's also the fraudulent elector scheme, um, which, you know, nothing in this, I mean, there's nothing about that in here, but, you know, I think that it is plausible that she may have had some role, uh, at least in terms of advocacy, in advocating uh, for the fraudulent uh, elector scheme. And again, that's significant because um, the presidency of the United States is a thing of value, and therefore the, uh, an attempt to uh, fraudulently appoint electors is, is basically an attempt to uh, defraud the government of the United States. So, you know, that's a conspiracy. So she may be involved there, uh, you know, allegedly. Um, doubt that she has personally any direct links to the attackers. I 
don't necessarily, I mean, and this, I could be wrong, right? There, you know, maybe what she's doing on the 10th in that message where she's denouncing the Capitol attackers is just covering her own uh, culpability. But what's interesting is that if you read the conversation, I really think that there is a sense that Meadows knows that all of this is going to go to the National Archives. Uh, Thomas either knows and doesn't care. I mean, she's been in Washington so long and she's been removed from any kind of consequences. So she feels like she can speak free on anything. You know, that's, that's one possibility. Um, but again, points to the, the nature of the conspiracy itself. And it was compartmentalized and it was a crowdsourced insurrection with multiple plans. Uh, the East Memo is part of it, right? The attack is part of it. And, you know, whether who, who which parties knew which elements of the plan uh, is something that we don't know. I mean, the fact that she is, you know, at the Willard on January 6th, you know, maybe. Uh, maybe she had some role in that stuff as well. But as, as far as I, you know, as far as anyone can tell, really, um, this is someone who is strenuously arguing for the overturning of a presidential election uh, with the chief of staff of the president. And that in and of itself is significant for the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice. So... Again, though, I think the story is typical of what we're going to see in the weeks uh, leading up to the public hearings. And I think that this is a last-ditch effort intended to get Mark Meadows to flip before the public hearings uh, because he is the person who is best positioned to have information that directly implicates and incriminates Donald Trump. So we don't know if it will work. We don't know what may be going on behind the scenes with the Department of Justice and the January 6th committee. But remember, this was a choice, right? This, you know, the decision to release this information to the Washington Post and uh, CBS was a choice that someone at the committee made at this time for a particular purpose. So while we're all, you know, uh, shocked and mulling over the, the content of what Jenny Thomas had to say to Mark Meadows. Uh, we should be aware that there are things that are going on. And, you know, my theory is that this is being done to put more, more pressure on Mark Meadows. Um, but, you know, rest assured, I know there are a lot of people out there who don't have faith in Merrick Garland uh, and who think that the people who are running the January 6th committee are, are idiots. Uh, I, I, you know, I actually believe rather the opposite, right? I think both the Department of Justice uh, you know, despite whatever flaws they've got going on, losing inmates, losing track of, of cases, uh, and the January 6th committee, despite the, the fact that it is going so slowly, it's been 82 years already, right? Um, nonetheless, I believe that they are doing this work competently. There are former prosecutors on the committee, right? So you've got people like Raskin and Schiff, and you've got all these, you know, um, Liz Cheney, who seems to be taking this whole thing very, very personally, and is very much standing for democracy, even though I, you know, I don't disagree with, I don't agree with her on just about anything. Nonetheless, I agree with her that we should decide outcomes of politics through elections in this country, and she's, she and Adam Kinzinger have taken a stand for that on, in their work on the committee, and I believe 
that, you know, we're going to see something happen here uh, in the next four to six weeks. Thank you so much. Um, again, you can always get in t- contact with the show on Twitter. Scott Kuhn, uh, at CapInsurRep uh, on Twitter. Um, also, let me know. I, this is the first time I've, I've added music. Uh, I don't know, you know, I mean, generally, like, if I was in a classroom, I wouldn't have music playing in the background. Uh, but, you know, it's a thing that some podcast listeners like. Uh, so let me know if it's good or if it's awful. And I will uh, take your advice uh, into consideration. Thank you so much. Uh, Until next time.